Welcome to Providence. We are going to continue our sermon series called Roots and Fruit this week, where we are exploring the fruits of the Spirit. Today we're going to be talking about faithfulness, and I'm just going to open up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your church scattered around the world. Thank you for your church scattered around Denver this morning, and thanks for your church here at Providence and Reynuevo as we have come together today to worship you uh, in a variety of languages and cultures. Um, God, thank you for your love for us and for your love for all people. Uh, I pray that this morning your faithfulness would be on display in the sermon and that it would minister to the hearts of your people here. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, my family and I went on vacation, and uh, yeah, woo. <laughs> and we had fun. I don't know, I know that I'm not the only one that experiences this, but after vacation, when you get home, do you ever feel the post-vacation blues where you're just depressed? You like show up for work the next day, you're depressed, or maybe you're anxious and you don't know why, but you just kind of feel this anxiety. That's actually a normal thing. I was frustrated by it many years ago, and so I looked into it to see if I'm the only one that feels this way, and psychologists actually call it the post-vacation blues, because everybody feels that way. You get out of routine for a little while, you get to think uh, or pretend like work doesn't matter or doesn't exist, and you just have fun, but then you get back into the routines of life, and you're like, oh man, this is heavy, right? <laughs> So I was experiencing that Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Every night, I would wake up at around 2.30 or 3 in the morning, and I would just be awake for the rest of the night. Not overly, not like intensely anxious. Not, I wouldn't describe it as struggling with anxiety, but still just like, ugh, tense, worried, depressed. I don't know what all it was, but it was all just kind of a mix in there, and I could not get back to sleep. And by Wednesday morning, I remember I was just laying awake for several hours and just thinking, I have a number of friends uh, who come from very wealthy families. None of them that I know of come from billionaire families, but multi-multi-millionaire families, the kind of wealth where their families could buy several houses for their kids if they wanted to. And I've always looked at that situation like, man, that would be nice because I don't come from that. And I don't know if any of you come from that, but I don't come from that. And when I go through difficult seasons of life, I often find myself thinking, man, a safety net like a billionaire dad would be really nice right now. <laughs> you know, it would be really nice right now. And my friends that come from wealthy families would say, it's not as nice as you think it is. It's actually pretty complicated, but I don't believe them. I think it would be nice. <laughs> Especially when I own a business and as the market slows down, like the real estate market has slowed down this year, the economy is kind of all over the place. It's stressing a lot of people out. People are getting laid off. And when I'm in this kind of a season, I'm like, man, I wish I had like a safety net that I could just depend on and know that even if the market crashes, I'm going to be okay. I found myself thinking specifically that way, like grieving the lack of a safety net Wednesday morning as I'm driving to an appointment. 
And if you're paying attention, you'll, you'll be able to, you can see in that little story a path to where my idols are. I have a, an idol in my heart of money that wants to convince me that money would solve all my problems. If I just had this safety net, if my dad was a billionaire, I wouldn't have to worry. Now, that idol exists for everybody. It may not be money, though. It might be something else. It might be whatever it is. If I had this, I just wouldn't have to worry anymore, right? So on my way to my appointment, I just found myself praying, God, I know, I know that this is idolatry, and I know that I'm supposed to believe that you are my safety net. That's what God promises to be. I don't, I don't need another safety net. I have a safety net in my father who has promised to supply all of my needs. He's better than a billionaire dad. He owns everything. And he has said, I will supply all of your needs. You have nothing to worry about. And so I'm supposed to not only know that, but feel it. And so for a half hour as I was driving to my appointment, I was just praying, God, today, I've had three days of restless nights. Today, I just need to feel I need to feel that you're my safety net. Not just know it. I know it theologically. I need to feel it. And I was just praying that. And as I was praying, just a snippet of a verse came into my mind. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Or he will direct your steps in some translations. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. And so I just started praying that, saying, Lord, I am, I am doing my best in all of my life, in all of my ways to acknowledge you, and I just need to know that you're going to make my path straight. I just need to know it. I believe it. I just need to feel it today. And I was just praying that over and over on my way to my appointment. These folks are getting ready to sell their house, and I walk in, and we start a conversation. I get set up in their kitchen uh, open up my laptop, and I look out into the living room. It's an open kitchen and living room area, and there on the wall is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 framed, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. And in that moment, I felt it. I felt it. He, was fa he didn't have to do that for me. He didn't have to respond to me. But I felt him respond to the prayer that I'd been praying the whole way there. God, I just, I know it. I need to feel it. I need to feel your faithfulness to me. I have no reason to be anxious. I have no reason to be worried. I know this, but today I need to feel it. And he responded and he met me in that space. What I've learned in my years of being a pastor here at Providence is that when God does something like that in my life, he often intends to speak that way to numbers of people at Providence. And so my guess is this morning, I'm not the only one who finds themselves needing to feel the faithfulness of God in your life. And so this morning, all I'm going to do is talk about the faithfulness of God. That's it. Today, we're talking about the fruits of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit that we're talking about is faithfulness. And I'm not going to tell you in this sermon to be more faithful. I'm not going to say go out and be more faithful in your life. I'm just going to tell you how faithful your father is. And actually what Galatians 5 says is if you will just soak in that reality for a while, if you will keep in step with the spirit, God is so faithful that he will make you faithful. So as you lean into his faithfulness, 
you yourself will produce faithfulness in your life. You'll see it like fruit popping up in your life. If we were looking at an image of the front range of Colorado, there are a number of you who could name all of the 14,000 foot peaks. I can't do that. I've lived here for almost 20 years now, and I can't do that. I know some of their names. I know there's a Longs in there and an Evans, uh, but I, I don't know all of them, and you could name them. What I want us to imagine this morning is that we are getting away together. Like, uh, Jesus would often pull his disciples away, and they would just spend time together. I'm not saying I'm Jesus. I'm certainly not. But we're getting away together, and we're going up into the mountains to a retreat, and we're just going to spend some time soaking in the presence of God. And as we're sitting there, we're surrounded by all of these mountains, and we don't have time to explore them all, but I'm just going to point out a few of them and talk to you about a few of them, okay? So, Scripture is full of accounts of the faithfulness of God and full of texts that talk about the faithfulness of God. And they are like 14,000-foot peaks that pop up all throughout Scripture, and we don't have time to point at every single one of them. But I'm going to look at four today with you, okay? Four areas of our lives where God's faithfulness, if we will lean into it and depend on it, as we come to know him as faithful, his faithfulness in these areas will produce faithfulness in our lives. So let's jump in. First, God is faithful to you in your disaster. In fact, I'm going to flip that around so that you can receive it. He is faithful to me in my disaster. Faithfulness is not just something that God does. Faithfulness is who God is. Scripture says that he abounds in two things, steadfast love and faithfulness. These two things flow out of him. And we know that God is love. We say that all the time, right? I mean... John wrote his epistle and he says, God is love. And so we're accustomed to saying God is love, but we're not so accustomed to saying God is faithfulness. But that's how God describes himself. It's in his very name. In Exodus 34, 6, God descends to Moses in a cloud. And the text says, God proclaimed the name of the Lord to Moses and here is the name of the Lord that God proclaimed to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God doesn't just do faithfulness. He is faithful, but he is faithfulness itself. This is part of his name. So he is faithful to us in our disaster, our suffering, this is all over scripture. And for me, early on, when I became an adult, I, be, I was married at a young age, 21 years old. And in that next, over that next three to five years of my life, my, I went through kind of a period uh, where I wasn't really sure what I believed or why I believed it. Intense questioning. You might call it deconstruction. It sort of happened to me. And I found myself sitting there looking at what did I actually believe, considering that, wrestling with that. And it was in those years that God, uh, through the help of a number of different pastors, helped me understand a deep theology around suffering. Why do bad things happen to good people? If God loves us, why does he allow 
bad things to happen to us. And today, we don't have time to unpack an entire theology of suffering. If you're going through suffering right now, disaster right now, and you want some resources, I'm happy to share some resources with you. You can come up to me after the service, and I'll point you to some things that I have found tremendously helpful. But we are going to look at one concept here that's crucial as we as Christians go through suffering, and that is the faithfulness of God in the midst of suffering. His faithfulness does not mean that he will prevent bad things from happening to you. His faithfulness means he will be right there with you, carrying you through disaster. A few texts to look at this. 1 Peter chapter 4 says this, if anyone suffers as a Christian, and Peter is writing to the persecuted church, Rome is trying to stamp out Christianity violently. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And he's going to quote a text here, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What Peter is saying is, he says this actually earlier, he's concluding an argument around how Christians should respond to suffering. And at the beginning of the argument, he actually says, when you go through something difficult, when, you, when suffering shows up on your doorstep, don't be surprised as though something unusual is happening to you. We all endure suffering. And if Jesus himself suffered, his followers are going to suffer. This is part of the human existence. Don't be surprised by it. Then he goes through and he makes some points about suffering. And this is his conclusion. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will, be the, uh, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He's not saying if the righteous is barely saved. What, he, what he's actually saying there is if the righteous are saved through a difficult life or difficult tribulations, if the righteous are saved and they endure suffering, how much worse would it be to not have God, to go through suffering without God? That's, that's what he's saying. And he concludes with this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The only way you and I are going to make it when disaster strikes, the only way we're going to make it through that is to entrust our souls to lean on the faithfulness of God. It's who he is. It's who he is. The faithfulness of God is what will carry us through times of suffering. In fact, Jesus himself practiced this. Earlier in 1 Peter, chapter 2, Peter writes, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is how Jesus went through suffering and tribulation and ultimately death. He leaned on the faithfulness of God. This is the only way he was able to pray in the garden when he was sweating drops of blood. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Because he knew this about God. He knew that God is abounding in faithfulness and God would be faithful to him even in his darkest hour. 
In 2 Timothy, Paul is going to say some similar things to what Peter says. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about he himself being a prisoner in chains. And he says, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything, all this hardship, all this suffering. I endure it for the sake of the elect, you, my brothers and sisters, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He's saying, as you approach suffering, you have a couple of options. You could deny God and say, I've got this. I'm going to go my own way, and I'm going to avoid whatever this is. Jesus was faced with this temptation in the garden. He said, Father, let this cup pass from me, right? He had the opportunity to get out of this. He could have gotten out of it. He could have said, this is enough. I've had enough. I'm not going through this. I'm going to go a different way. And instead, he entrusted himself to his faithful creator. Right? Do you see that? But then what Paul says, he goes further. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. In other words, his faithfulness does not depend on yours. Yours depends on his. And you are never going to be as faithful as he is. The assumption is that we are faithless. The assumption is we are not faithful, but he is faithful. And the good news is when we're unfaithful, he remains faithful and he will never deny himself. He can't deny his name. This is who he is. He's faithful even in and possibly particularly in our suffering. So when disaster strikes, God is faithful. Not only is he faithful in our disaster, he's faithful to us in our despair If you struggle with anxiety, regularly or occasionally, or depression, you find yourself worked up. David would would refer to this as a downcast soul. Have you ever felt that way? You wake up in the morning, and you get to about lunchtime, and you're like, man, I'm just feeling down. The Psalms are for you. You should go to the Psalms. You will find comfort in David's misery. (laughs) I am telling you, when I'm anxious, it helps me to know that David was anxious too. And we could go to a dozen different texts in the Psalms, but we don't have time for that today. Today, I want to go to Psalm 56 and 57. And I'm going to park in 57 verse 3 for this main point, but I want you to see all of this. Psalm 55, 56, 57. These are great Psalms to read if you're ever feeling worried or anxious, if you're ever despairing. If you ever find yourself under this weight of dread, go to the Psalms, especially 56 and 57. Psalm 56, verse 4, David says, "In I will, verse 3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? David is writing these words while he is afraid, and he says, I will not be afraid. He's preaching to his own heart, about the faithfulness of God to alleviate his fears, reminding himself that he doesn't need to be afraid. He talks about all day long, they injure my cause, and he talks about his, his, the current state of his soul, but he says this in verse 8, you have kept count of my tossings, my tears you've put in your bottle. Are they not in your book? 
Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is what it looks like to take, even in your moments of fear, to just say it to your soul. I don't need to be afraid. God is faithful. It continues into Psalm 57. Be merciful, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Right there, David is claiming the name of God over his life. He will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. What is that? They're not just his attributes, they're him. God himself will come to me in my fear, in my anxiety. In my sadness, God will come and stand with me and stand for me because God is faithful and he can't deny himself. He can't be unfaithful to me. He can't. This is how the psalmist deals with his despair. This is all over the psalm, Psalm 69, verse 13. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Psalm 86, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. He's repeating the name of God that God introduced to Moses. You, O God, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. If this is true, let me feel it. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. This is a cry for help in the middle of despair, and God himself is faithful to David. Psalm 91, he will cover you with his pinions, it's a feather, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Sometimes you can see suffering coming from a long way off, can't you? You can see it coming, and you're like, that's going to hurt, right? I do not want to go through that. And then it's here. But before it gets here, you feel fear and anxiety. You're tossing and turning, like the psalm says. You've got tears that God is keeping in his bottle. God's aware of all of these things. It is godly for you in that moment to cry out to his faithfulness and say, God, I need you in this moment. I don't need money. I don't need all of these other things that I might be hoping in. I need you. And in your faithfulness, I need you to come to me and take my fear. This is how Peter could say, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The only way you're going to cast your anxieties on him is if you truly believe that he's faithful. And my experience in life has been that as I do that, I feel it. I feel it. So he's faithful in disaster. He's faithful in despair. He's also faithful in defeat. We can often feel like when we need the faithfulness of God, when we need God to show up and be with us in our suffering, we can often feel like we don't deserve it, and so it might not happen. Maybe I shouldn't say we do. I do. I feel that way. I look at my 
previous two or three days or previous week or life and think, ah, I have let him down so many times. He has no reason to show up for me. And I have no right to demand that he show up for me. And so I'm just going to hope that he does. I might ask him, but I'm going to ask him timidly, like, ah, God, if you're not busy, could you please, could you please come? Why? Because I don't deserve it. I've lived a life of defeat, or maybe I've recently been defeated by sin again. And so I don't feel like I can ask him. I wouldn't dare ask him to come and help me when I just forsook him last night. This is what Peter went through. He denies the Lord three times, and then he, he says, I'm going fishing. I don't know what else to do. I'm out. That's what he does. And what does Jesus do? Jesus goes and finds him. After he comes out of the grave, he goes and he finds Peter, and he says, Peter, I want you to lead my church. Forget your denial. Forget about that. I, I want you, Peter. I want you. So he will be faithful to us in defeat. And I'm not, these are not just my words that I want you to hope in. This is the word of God. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except that, or no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God is faithful to you in the moment of temptation. If you will rely on his faithfulness, you can resist temptation. That's what the promise of scripture is there. When you find yourself being tempted, you can turn to him and say, deliver me. This is the Lord's prayer. We just sang it. Deliver me from temptation. Deliver me. And he will provide a way out. But if you're like me, sometimes you'll take the way out. And sometimes you'll lean into the temptation and give in and be defeated by temptation. Well, then what? Romans 3, verse 3 says, what if some were unfaithful? He's talking about the children of Israel. And if you read the Old Testament, the story of, the, of God's people, of God restoring and redeeming his people, you will see that it's a very human story. You will see that it's people trusting God and then trusting in themselves. Trusting God and then rejecting God and trusting in themselves. Then trusting God because life gets really hard when they reject him and trust in themselves. Things go badly for them. And so then they go back to trusting God again and then they trust in themselves. It's a cycle that goes over and over and over again. It's a story of a faithful God with an unfaithful people. And if you read it, you can see yourself there. You can see your life there. You can see, man, when life is good, it's easy for me to forget about God and think that this is on me and I've got this. But when life goes south, I realize I need God. Same is true with our defeat. When we're suffering defeat, the agony of defeat, Paul says, so if they were unfaithful, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Your unfaithfulness cannot and will not nullify the faithfulness of your father. It doesn't even compete with his faithfulness. He is abounding, overflowing with faithfulness, and you will never exhaust it. You'll never put a dent in it. He will be faithful to you even when you are not faithful to him. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins... 
And John has already told us, if you say that you're not a sinner, you're just lying to yourself. But if you will confess, if we will just confess our sins to God, he is faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful, not up until the point of sin. He is faithful to you in the middle of your sin. While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. In that moment, not after you repented of your sin. He didn't die for you after you cleaned yourself up, after you turned from sin. He died for you while you were a sinner. He died for you. He loves you in that moment. When you sin, he doesn't turn away and say, let me know when you get that figured out. When you sin, he actually comes closer to you. And the best way I could illustrate this, some clients of mine are just going through heartbreak. Their young child has been diagnosed with leukemia. They're constantly in the hospital with chemo treatments and all sorts of other things. Now infections are starting to come up and they've, they've been going through this process for over a year now and it's hard and it's heartbreaking. And if you put yourself in that environment, your son has been diagnosed with leukemia. How would you respond to your son? Would you scold him? Would you be angry with him? No. No, would you be frustrated that he's taking up your finances and your time? No, you wouldn't. Would you resent him? Would you resent your son if he was sick with leukemia? Of course not, but you would hate cancer. You would hate it. Jesus didn't spend a lot of time talking about himself as a priest when he was dealing with sin, even though he was our and is our faithful high priest. He didn't talk about himself that way to sinners. He didn't say, I'm a priest, and so you need to clean yourself up to come into my presence. He talked about himself like a physician. And in talking about himself like a physician, he was giving us a window into the heart of God for us in our sin. And he doesn't see you when you have fallen into sin, you've given in to temptation, he does not resent you. Remember, it's in his name. He's slow to anger. He's gracious. And he's overflowing with steadfast love and faithfulness, even in the moment of your sin. He's not resenting you. He hates cancer. He hates sin. But he sees you the same way a father or a mother sees a child going through leukemia. That's how he sees you. He's drawn into you. Don't run from him in that moment in defeat. He is faithful in your defeat and in mine. I tend, when I've been defeated by sin, when I find myself in sin, I tend to keep him at an arm's length because I don't deserve his faithfulness. But that would be like having malaria and keeping a doctor at an arm's length with life-saving medicine because you don't deserve it. That would dishonor the doctor, and it would kill you, right? So don't dishonor the Father by keeping him away from you in your sin. Run to him. He is faithful when you're not faithful. It's a promise. Lastly, he is faithful with our destiny. You can trust him with your destiny. There's a universe of difference between two little words, was and is. Was and is. As I was 
preparing for this sermon, there was, a, there was a quote I was looking for and I couldn't find it, uh, but it was by Pastor Tim Keller, who was a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And he passed away uh, from pancreatic cancer in May. And he doesn't know me, and I never really met him, but he was a mentor to me through his writing. And he wrote many books, preached many sermons, and I was sad when he died. But I was looking him up, and as I looked him up, uh, a little Wikipedia snippet came up in the Google results, and it said, Tim Keller was. And my heart broke in that moment, because it used to say, Tim Keller is. For every single one of us in the room, that is is going to change to was. Every one of us. It's coming. We were born, and from the moment we were born, we started dying. Yeah. And for some of us, it's going to happen at an earlier age than others of us, but we will all die, and the is will become was. And who is God to us in that moment? Romans talks about that transition, death talks about it, and it says the evil one keeps us enslaved to fear of death, to the fear of death. We are his slaves as long as we're under the fear of death, but what Jesus did by conquering death and coming back from the dead was to deliver us from the fear of death. We don't have to be afraid of it anymore. In fact, this point was he can be, he's faithful, he's trustworthy in our death, but destiny is bigger than death, and so are you. You were meant to live forever, forever. And you get this little window of time to live, and then you die, and then you live again. And God is faithful with that destiny. He is calling you and leading you to more than just right here and right now. That's also how we're able to endure suffering. This is Psalm 23. This is what the psalmist is writing when he writes Psalm 23. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So right there, you've got disaster. I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. You've got despair, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy, which is also the same word, steadfast love, will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in your house forever. No matter what happens to me in the valley of the shadow of death, I will dwell with my Father forever. So that's why Paul could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. God is faithful beyond the grave. How do we know? How do we know? Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 5, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul is talking there about your destiny. He is saying there is coming a day when you will stand before the creator of all things. And in that moment, if you're like me, you will find plenty in your heart to be terrified about. What if he knows about this? Does he know about this? What if he wants to talk about this? And Paul says, in that moment, you will be kept blameless. Not by your own ability to remain faithful. He himself is faithful. He will surely do it. Jesus Christ is going to present you one day as though you had never sinned to his father. When you stand before your judge, 
You will be presented in the best light possible, better than you can ever imagine. And you will walk into your forever destiny for the rest of your life with your Father in heaven. No post-vacation blues. It's paradise. How do we know? How do we know? How can we know this? Because we see this play out in the gospel in Luke 23. Jesus is on the cross, and he's hung between two thieves. One of them believes in him. One of them believes that he is God and faithful. He has to believe that because of what he asks him. What does he ask Jesus? Do you remember? What does he ask him? Remember me. If you're going to ask this person next to you who's about to die, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You have to believe that's a faithful person you're talking to, right? And Jesus' response to him is, today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't talk at all about what's about to immediately happen. He doesn't say, well, today you're going to die. Doesn't respond that way. No, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. So if he's removed the sting of death and we don't have to be enslaved to the fear of death anymore, we can now approach the end of our lives and see beyond the end of our lives into our destiny as a son or a daughter of God himself. He's faithful to us with our destiny. Psalm 31.5, Jesus cried this out. This was his last cry on the cross. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Jesus' last act before he died on the cross was to cry out to the faithfulness of God. Into my hands, I commend my spirit. And if Jesus himself could do that, and come out the other side of the grave, so will you and so will I. There is nothing we have to be afraid of. We're going to live. We're going to endure suffering. We're going to feel fear. We're going to sin. We're going to suffer defeat and agony and anguish. We're also going to feel a lot of joy because Jesus came to give us life to the fullest possible extent. But we're going to experience all of these things, and then we're going to die. And even there, God himself will be faithful. His faithfulness doesn't run out at the end of your life. You've just begun to experience the faithfulness of God. He has stored up riches of kindness to pour out on you for all of eternity. So this morning, I'm not here to tell you to be faithful. If you're understanding what I'm saying, if you're understanding what scripture is saying, you will want to be faithful because you want to be like your father in heaven who is faithful. And even in the midst of your unfaithfulness, he is faithful. He's so faithful that he will make you faithful. So keep in step with him. Keep in step with him. Let's pray. Father, we turn this all over to you. We trust you. We trust you with our lives. We trust you with our disaster. We trust you with our despair. We trust you with our destiny. Father, I just pray this morning, I don't know who here needs to feel your faithfulness, but I pray they'd feel it from you today. I pray you'd speak to your sons and your daughters. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.